0: Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, the second chapter, verses 1 through 10. Please follow along with your own Bibles on the screen in front or simply listen as the passage is read aloud. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon, Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. I am uh, one of the pastors here at High Rock, and it's uh, great to be worshiping with all of you this Sunday morning. Uh, We are going to get to the sermon in just a little bit, but before we do that, we're going to do something else. Um, Lanny mentioned just a couple minutes ago in the announcements that uh, beginning tomorrow, everyone has the opportunity to... um, uh, participate in this discernment journal. It's got some daily stuff that everybody will be walking through together, and they're out in the lobby, like she said. Um, The digital version that she mentioned, uh, it is up and it's online on the website, so you can grab that at any point that you would like it. I will just make one mild addition to what she said. Uh, We printed 50 of these because they're a little costly. And uh, so if you are going to do it, take one. If you think maybe you're going to do it, maybe try the digital version for a week. And if you do that in terms of you follow through, then great. Maybe let me know. Shoot us an email, and we'll print more if we need them for next Sunday. Um, But we don't want to just waste resources by just throwing them out and then people not participating. So if you're going to use it, then absolutely take one. We'll print more. I'll deliver it to your house if I need to. Um, But if not, if you want to test it out for a week, because you want to make sure, uh, the digital version is a good way to kind of practice that if you want to. Uh, Anyway, so that's my small thing. In the Discernment Journal, one of the things that we're going to be doing daily as a part of our evening uh, routine is... Uh, something called the daily Examine. and if you aren't familiar with it, the examine is a, a simple tool or a, or a practice that is used uh, in kind of meditative prayer to reflect on the day that has just happened. It's popularized by uh, St. Saint Ign- Saint Ignatius of Loyola. It's been used by century- for centuries by uh, Catholics and Protestants alike. And if you are participating in the Daily Discernment Journal, then this will be a part of your daily routine. But even if you don't participate in going through the Daily Discernment Journal and giving those 30 minutes every day, um, it's still a fantastic spiritual practice. And so um, before we get into the sermon this morning, I wanted to just take us through a daily examine so that you get to experience what it's like corporately here so that then on your own or as a part of the Daily Discernment Journal, uh, you kind of have an idea of what it looks like. If you don't like what's about to happen, it's not weird um, overall, it's a little bit weird, but it's not real weird overall. But if you don't like, you can just stare at me and you don't have to participate. That Totally no problem. Um, but for anyone who's kind of willing, I'm just going to invite you into, it's going to take about five minutes and we're just going to walk through uh, the daily exam almost always, there are many versions of it, but the one that we're using in most of them have five simple steps. You're on each one for About a minute each, uh, and then it's done. And it's just a reflective time of uh, prayer and and reflection over the course of the day. So, for the next five minutes or so, this is what we're going to do together. So, I invite you into the daily examine, and uh, I invite you to start by um, just sitting in your chair if you have one. If you're standing in the back, um, it's going to be really hard to do this, but you can still try. sit in your chair if you're if it's comfortable for you just close your eyes uh, because there's a little bit of imaginative uh time in this and i just invite you um to sit still i invite you to breathe slowly i invite you to relax your body um to be aware of your body, and to relax your body. The first thing that we're going to do in the daily examine is simply I'm going to invite you to place yourself in the presence of God and to thank him for his great love for you. So just as you sit and as you breathe um, and as you try to kind of relax your physical structure... I invite you just to place yourself, your body, your mind, your spirit in the presence of God and thank him for his great love for you. And then I ask you to um, to simply pray for God's grace so that you are able to see or comprehend or understand how God is acting in your life. Just pray for his grace so that you might have wisdom to see how he is acting. Posture yourself to be to become aware of his activity. And then I invite you to um, recall the day so far. Think back over um, each activity, each conversation, each event. And we are early in this day, but even just in the last couple of hours since you woke, just recall the things that have happened, the meal that you may have had, the person that you talked to, what has already happened this morning. And once you have seen those things, reflect on what you either said or did in those moments. And did those moments, did each individual moment um, draw you closer to God or further away? And then finally, invite you to um, move out of the past of the day that has happened so far and move into the future to look forward to the rest of this day um, and to look forward into tomorrow. And consider how you might partner more effectively with God's plan for your life. And try to be specific. If there is a meal that you are going to share, if there is a person that you are going to meet or a conversation you are going to have, if there is a classroom you are going to enter or a workplace where you will arrive, think of the specifics. Imagine the activity of your day. And how God might minister through you in those moments. Amen. So this is the daily examine. And it is something you will do each evening if you're participating. It's a short amount of time, but it's a reflective moment um, to... Place yourself in the presence of God to to, um, try to become aware of his activity in your life, to reflect on your day. Um, St. Ignatius talked about um, a spirit of consolation and a spirit of desolation. And how we can think of moments and um, we can sense in them uh, consolation, God's good activity and the holiness and the rightness of those moments. Or we can sense in them desolation, God's um, absence or or the sense of him not being there, or the unholiness, and and how we can reflect and look back, and and we can usually, as we reflect and discern, we can see the difference. And so this will be a part of uh, going through that discernment journal um, uh, in the weeks to come. So I wanted to practice that together just for those of you who are going to enter into it, so you have at least done it once, and you have a little bit of context for going. But for any of you, it's just a wonderful practice. You can find hundreds of versions of the exam and all usually with five questions of very similar content, but different in their own way um, online or in books and books of common worship. So they're all over the place uh, if that's something that is of benefit to you. As for the sermon this morning, uh, we turn our attention to the book of Exodus, which is Uh, going to serve today and in the weeks coming forward um, as the basis for our sermons and for our preaching over the next few months. And we are turning to the book of Exodus for a very simple and specific reason. And that reason is, the story of the Exodus is the story of God taking a community of people and moving them out of one circumstance or place... And moving them into a new circumstance or place. And the journey between those two places. And that meta-narrative connects with what is happening in the lives of our two churches right now, as both Mars Hill Fellowship Church and High Rock Church are being led out of what we were and where we were and who we were into something that we don't totally understand or see or or are able to envision, but that's something that is new. And we'll dig into that a little bit more later. And so I think that there are lessons to be learned. There's encouragements to be had from the incredible story of the Exodus, even in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So that's where we are going to turn our attention for the foreseeable future. And so we begin in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Now, Uh, The passage that Davida just read for us a few minutes ago was from Exodus chapter 2, recording the birth and the early story of the baby Moses. We'll get into that in just a moment. But chapter 2 begins with the words, during this time. And the obvious question is, during what time? What is the opening of Exodus chapter 2 referring back to in Exodus chapter 1? And so if you have your Bibles, uh, either in digital or in print form, uh, if you can have them open at least presently to Exodus chapter 1, and then we'll move into chapter 2 in a few minutes. Um, We're going to start there. If you look at the opening verses of Exodus chapter 1, then you will see, especially if you have the print version, that they are a direct uh, transition from the end of Genesis, the book of Genesis. And they note that the the sons of Jacob and the the sons that went with Jacob down into Egypt who were joining Joseph, who was already there. Uh, If you remember this story, um, Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob, but uh, was... Uh, he had a number of kind of uh, self exalting dreams that got him in trouble with some of his siblings. So those siblings kind of threw him into a pit and then sold him off into. Uh, slavery and off he went to egypt and they pretended that he was dead but lo and behold many years later he turns up and he's not only in egypt but he's flourished there and now he's one of the most powerful and influential people in the land and he works for the pharaoh there at the time and when his brothers come you know there's this big beautiful weird reunion and then eventually they all come down and kind of join him there because he has a lot of position and clout and status and that's great but chapter one tells us that eventually Joseph's father, Jacob, uh, Joseph's brothers, and Joseph himself died. But their kids kept having kids. And those kids had a lot of kids. And those kids had a lot of kids. Until eventually, a couple hundred years later, a new Pharaoh, you know, obviously, was in charge in Egypt. But this Pharaoh didn't know who Joseph was. He didn't know what Joseph had done for Egypt. He was a forgotten figure in this Pharaoh's mind. What this Pharaoh knew was, there is this family that has been replicating itself at an extraordinary rate. And what used to just be this, you know, the 12 sons of Jacob who lived down here in Egypt, we don't, now have filled the land. They are just, they are everywhere. And so in Exodus chapter one, verse nine, the Pharaoh says to his people, these Israelites are becoming a threat to us because there are so many of them. So think 13th century BC immigration crisis, where a nation feels it is being overwhelmed by foreigners from the outside who are becoming more and more numerous. Of course, most of these foreigners were born and raised in Egypt. Some of them are second and third and fourth generation in that land. But as their number grew... So did the concern of Pharaoh. And his concern was not that they would try to amass an army and try to overthrow the Pharaoh or or try to make some political change by force. His fear, according to verse 10, was that this huge internal people group, when one of the enemies of Egypt came and attacked, that they would join that enemy, fight with that enemy against Egypt, so that they could then escape from Egypt and go off into their own land, which would have been devastating for Egypt's economy and military capability because these Israelites were the ones who were doing all the hard labor jobs that none of the Egyptians wanted to do, like making the bricks for building cities and fortifications. So, if they became too numerous, to the point that they had the ability to fight and then secure their own release, that would erode the foundation of Egypt's monetary and military might, which Pharaoh didn't like. It's incredible how politics 3,000 years ago can be so relevant. And so... This reproductive flourishing produces in Pharaoh a fear that compels him to try to curb their reproductive capacity. His first attempt at this is in verse 11, and he does it by formalizing the status of the Israelites as slaves in Egypt and by placing over them brutal slave drivers who were established in authority in the hopes of making their physical labor so overwhelming that it would um, curb their enthusiasm, if you will, and they wouldn't begin reproducing so quickly. But Pharaoh's plan backfires, and the harder the slave drivers go after these Israelite workers, the faster they seem to multiply. This led to even harsher conditions in the factories and the fields, But it also led to a a far more devastating response from Pharaoh. In chapter 1, verse 15, Pharaoh goes to two of the Hebrew midwives. And he tells them that from now on, when an Israelite woman gives birth, if it is a girl, fine, let her live. But if it is a boy, he is to be terminated immediately. Now, Let's slow down just for a moment to explore this a bit. First, the reason for this edict is that according to Pharaoh's calculations, the boys are the real threat. Because boys grow up to be soldiers, and soldiers can fight for their freedom. But he allows the girls to live because he doesn't mind having some of the females around to serve in the palace and beyond. And because he can turn those women over to Egyptian men and he can breed the problem away over time if need be. And second, and what is kind of incredible and strangely beautiful about this is that even as Pharaoh is telling these Hebrew midwives to kill the boys who are the threat, but let the girls live, it is the women, both at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, who are the ones to outsmart Pharaoh and who ultimately provide the path for Israel's Savior to be kept safe. In fact, even if you just look at this at a literary level in terms of the, the author of Genesis of Exodus 1 and 2, Chapter 1 begins by the naming of famous and influential Hebrew men like Jacob and Joseph and Judah. But by the end of chapter 1, we are naming Hebrew women like Shifra and Puah because these women are becoming the heroes of the story. They don't obey Pharaoh's command. They let the sons live. Um, When Pharaoh calls them in to question them about this, they make up a story about how um, Hebrew women are just so much stronger than Egyptian women, and that when they go in to give birth, they just, they're kind of in, they're done, they're out, and they're on their way, and we're trying to get there to help deliver these babies, but they're such hardy women that when they walk in, they just kind of sit on the stool, pop it out, and out they go, and when we get there, there's no one in there, so we have no sons to get rid of. These these Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women who are so pained and laborious, and oh, this is so hard. These Hebrew women are, my, which is fantastic, right? Not only are they lying directly to his face to save their skin, but they're like, you know, knocking his people and, you know, anyway, it's a fantastic play on him. And so chapter one ends with Pharaoh feeling out of options. And in verse 22, he gives an order not to Hebrew midwives, but this time he gives an order to every Egyptian that if they see a newborn Israelite boy, take him to the river and drown him. And so just in case all of that kind of flew by you and the gravity of the situation is hard to catch. Chapter 1 tells us that the Israelites, even though they had been born and raised in Egypt, because they were multiplying too quickly, were made to be like politically classified as slaves in the land. They were then given slave drivers who had the responsibility of making their work so crushing and cruel that it left no opportunity for procreation. And that when this didn't work, not only was that workday made harder and longer still, but the leader of the nation began a campaign of masculine infanticide where an effort was made to murder every newborn Hebrew son. So, if you are an Israelite living in Egypt in 13th century B.C., you are a community that is in epic crisis. And if something is not done, then you are at risk of being eliminated from the face of the planet as a people. So chapter 1 is a deeply distressing and painful and hopeless time To be an Israelite. That's the hopelessness that we find in chapter one. And then chapter two begins with during this time, at this moment in Israel's story, during this horrible, crushing, deadly time, a new hope begins to emerge. In the story of God's people, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. She became pregnant, and they gave birth to the son, to a son. And in uh, verse two of chapter two, there is this um, beautiful literary detail. In uh, the New Living Translation, it reads: "She saw what a beautiful baby he was." And so she kept him hidden for three months. Now, that's a strange little line in there because if you read it, you know, quite literally, and it feels like what is being communicated is that this woman gave birth to a son. She noticed that this son happened to be particularly beautiful. And because he was particularly beautiful, She didn't want to give in to the king's edict to have him drown in the Nile, so instead she hid him away to keep him safe. And, of course, any natural, I mean, just normal person's first thought on that would be, like, no, I mean, that can't be right. It can't be that she hid him away because she thought he was beautiful. Like, if this was an ugly baby, then she would have just readily gone along with the king's command, right? Right? but that because he was so beautiful, she hid him, right? That's obviously ridiculous. So then why the mention, or what is the meaning of the mention, that she saw how beautiful he was, and so she hid him away for three months? Two bits of information um, that are of help. The first is that this woman and her husband already have two children. They have a daughter named Miriam. They have a son named Aaron. The second bit of information is the reference to her son being beautiful is not meant in the way of, oh, look how handsome or cute or cuddly this baby is. Let's not hand him over to be murdered. The language is rooted and it calls back to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation narrative where God sees, and when he sees, he says, and it was good. Where God looks upon the creation narrative, he sees something that is right and beautiful and perfect and, 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 is, and, is, and is yes, and he, and he calls it good. Like he sees something in it that is divine, right? Right? And so the sense from the mother here is not that this is just some cute baby that she kind of immediately adored and so didn't want to, you know, couldn't stand the thought of losing him. I'm sure that's all true. But rather that when this mother looked at him, that there was something right, something beautiful, something yes, something divine in him, maybe that she couldn't even explain at that point, but certainly that she couldn't destroy. And even though it probably kills us to think this way, or that's wrong wording, I'm sorry, but even though it probably deeply challenges us to think this way, destruction had to be an option that she was considering. She has two older kids. We don't know the exact timing of when she was pregnant versus when the edict from Pharaoh came out, but if she was already pregnant when the edict came, and now she has two children at home, and if she doesn't listen, if she doesn't follow through, if she has a, a baby girl, then no problem. But if it's a baby boy, and then she tries to hide the baby boy, but hiding babies, especially when you don't have you know the walls and stuff that we have now, because they scream, right? And they do all this stuff. Hiding them is extremely difficult to do. And what if she tries to hide this boy? And what if he is caught? Not only what will happen to him, but what happens to her other two children? So she has to be in a process of trying to think through, like, I, I'm giving birth to this kid. If it's a boy, I know what's supposed to happen. I have two other children to protect. What am I supposed to do? We, we don't know specifically what horrific thoughts or considerations this mother and, and father had to go through in the leading up to the delivery of this boy. What we do know is that when he was born, that there was something about him that was perfect in the way that the creation was perfect and that she knew that she must protect him in any way that she could. And so, for the first three months, we're told, she hid him away. And then we come to verse 3, which is too beautiful to describe, but we will take a couple minutes to make our feeble attempt. Um, Actually, if we can put verse 3 up on the screen, chapter 2, verse 3. It reads, as you can see, but when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The fear and the anxiety um, that this mother felt must have been just overwhelming. With every whimper, And every cry of this newborn boy, she must have rushed his lips to her breast to silence him with nourishment or with soothing. Because what if someone heard? And what if they came in and they found the boy that she was hiding? What would happen to him? And what would happen to his siblings? Every minute of those first three months must have been so full of fear and worry for her. And we read that after those three months, she just wasn't able any longer to hide him. He was growing, he was developing, and every day was harder than the next. Maybe she started getting suspicious looks or or pressure from her husband that they had to do something. And so she, in a moment of um, absolutely divine irony, turned to the river, where she was supposed to destroy her son and asked it to save her son. The river that was supposed to be his coffin, she turned to for his salvation. And what did she do? She got a basket made of papyrus reeds that were threaded together. And to make sure that that basket was waterproof and would float, she she went and put tar and pitch and she covered the whole of the bottom of the basket And once it had dried, I'm sure she took it down to the water at least once and tested it to make sure that it would float. And once everything was prepared, she took the basket down to the river. She put her baby boy inside. She settled it among the reeds at the edge of the river where it wouldn't be carried away or toppled by the current. And there she left her young son, in the hopes that someone else would save him. This basket in which he floated has been referred to as Moses' ark because that is what it is. Genesis chapter, or Exodus chapter 2 is in very direct and obvious ways pointing us back to Genesis chapter 6 and to Noah's ark. There were some differences in circumstances, but they carried so many parallels. In the days of Noah, sin and evil ruled the earth. A great water, a great flood was coming to destroy. But God saw Noah and his family, and he saw in them an opportunity for them to survive the flood and to have a new beginning. And so God told Noah, go and assemble an ark. And if you look at Genesis 6 verse 14, Noah assembled it not of reeds, but of Cyrus wood. And then he did exactly what Moses' mother did. He covered it in pitch and tar to waterproof it so that it would float. In both stories, there is water that will destroy and there is an ark that will save. They just varied in size substantially. Into which the opportunity for a new beginning would be placed. And so, just as Noah and his family had floated on top of the water toward salvation, there on the river lying in a basket is the baby Moses. And while his mother saw something in him that inspired her to protect him in whatever way she was able, no one could have predicted that this baby boy, floating among the reeds of the Nile, was to become the salvation of Israel. The life of this baby will be marked by privilege, by suffering, by exile, and by miracle after miracle after miracle in the incredible story of Israel's exodus. But for now, just here in chapter 2, he isn't Israel's salvation yet. He is a fleshy, chubby baby boy floating on the Nile, and crying out for the mother that has left him behind. The rest of the story is equally beautiful and ironic at times. A daughter of Pharaoh, who had demanded his death, finds the basket, and when she sees the baby inside, she has deep compassion on him. And as she is lifting him from his ark and holding him close to her to try and comfort him, Miriam comes running up. She had been watching from afar, likely because the basket was strategically positioned in a place where Pharaoh's daughter was known to visit. And Miriam casually asks if the woman would like her to go find some nursing Hebrew mother that might come and care for this child, an offer which Pharaoh's daughter accepts. This means that by nightfall, Moses is back in his mother's arms, nursing safe and sound. And there he stayed likely for the next couple of years with occasional visits from the Pharaoh's daughter. Until he was weaned and he was adopted by her for good and he went to the palace to live. The first time he had been strategically placed in a basket in the Nile by his mother for his own salvation. The second time strategically placed in the palace by God himself for the salvation of Israel. And so... That's as far as we go this morning. But a couple of reflections for us. First, um, a communal reflection for our two churches. Israel was a community that was in crisis. And it was into that crisis that God established a beautiful plan for his people. And while our two churches are not in that same kind of crisis, we are both in critical moments. Mars Hill Fellowship Church, you have abandoned your regular Sunday worship gatherings and space to gather instead with another church for shared worship. Some of you have found that wonderful. Some of you have found that challenging. And you have questions about your future. Will we still be worshiping together? Where will that be? What does the future of Mars Hill Fellowship Church look like? Hi Rock, we have our own questions about this partnership and what it looks like going forward. Your lead pastor is stepping down in a few months, and there are questions about who will lead, what will leadership look like, and what direction will God lead our community? Again, these are not points of crisis, but they are absolutely critical moments for both of our communities. And I think that today's passage encourages us that God is present, that God cares, that God hears our cries and hears our prayers and that he is someone that responds to them. Notice that he is not mentioned in the story and yet he is active and participating from behind and moving things into place and position. Because he has a plan. And even more, that he is a God who plants seeds and he puts plans together far before any other person even begins to think that a plan might need to be made. I'm sure if there was an Israelite who looked into the palace and saw Moses running around and thought to themselves, Wow, what a lucky child to have escaped the Nile. How fortunate for that kid. What they wouldn't have known, what they couldn't have known, was that that small boy in the palace playroom was central to God's eventual plan that was coming decades later for Israel's salvation. Long before anyone had noticed or contemplated it, God was already at work to save his people. And we take courage and confidence that even as we are asking questions now, these are questions that he not only, he, began to figure out and put in place long before we even knew to ask the questions. So that encourages us. And second, an individual reflection for each of us. I know every person here walked in today with your personal reality, daily realities that bring you fear or anxiety loneliness or discouragement and I simply want to remind you that that God hears our cries for help just like he heard Israel's next week uh, he will tell Moses directly I have heard my people crying out for me and that wasn't just a corporate hearing but it was personal he heard each person in their moment of devastation And suffering, crying out to him. And I don't know how or when, just like they didn't know how or when. But I want to encourage you that if you cry out to God, that he is faithful to hear and to respond. For Israel, it took decades. It doesn't always happen quickly. But it doesn't mean that he's not listening. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan. So cry out beg for mercy, beg for relief, beg for provision, and then wait in confidence and faith for the salvation that the Lord has coming. I want to just conclude with this uh, final thought. Not only does the story of Noah, of Moses, in his ark, point us Back to Noah and his heart. But the story of Moses in his little basket also points us forward to Jesus in the manger. Both baby boys, both with brave mothers, both in a kingdom where leaders were trying to kill them, but whose mothers were faithful to the incredible task that God gave to them to birth and to protect these baby boys. Both of them laid by humble mothers into a humble cradle. One a basket of reeds. Others a trough for feed. And both people who would lead others into salvation. The story of Moses is beautiful. But it's mostly beautiful. Because of what it points forward to. And for Jesus... When his moment of incredible suffering came and he cried out for help, there was no answer. He was ignored. And he was abandoned. The father turned his face and looked away. So that when we cry out and when we come to him for help, he can respond. Right? That is restored, but it's only because Jesus was ignored and abandoned by his father. And so we speak and we cry and we beg and we plead in prayer, not just because God listened to Israel, but also because he abandoned his son. So that we have opportunity. So how dare we not ask? The story of Moses is a beautiful one. But ultimately it only anticipates the greater, the more powerful story of Jesus. And the ultimate salvation that he would provide. Moses led his people into a new land and into greater freedom. Jesus would lead us into eternal life and into the kingdom of heaven. And so praise be to God for His the beauty of his plan both in the baby Moses lying in the ark and in the baby Jesus lying in the manger, who we celebrate after Christmas. Let us pray with thanksgiving together. can't imagine the fear of Moses' mom. Lord, I can't imagine the terror that was her day-to-day life. Um, I can't imagine how afraid you would have to be to release your son onto the river in the hopes that someone else would save him. I don't know how Terrified you'd have to be if you were Mary and you packed up your whole life and you moved, ironically, to Egypt to avoid your son being killed. These two incredible women did unbelievable things. Thankful for them, for their faithfulness. But we are far more grateful for the plan that you had and executed When we look back over the course of scripture, the stories and the way that they weave together and the beauty of them, it's overwhelming and it's inspiring. It calls us to worship. So we thank you for it. And in this season where we are remembering and celebrating your son in the manger, we are so grateful that he came, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again. We thank you so much. In his name,
0: amen.